All right. Today I have with me a good friend, my good friend, Kelly Helmuth. Hi, Alani. How are you? I'm doing all right. Kelly's a chief experience officer at Golden, and Kelly's an experienced chief, chief operating officer with a demonstrated history of working in the management consulting industry and is highly skilled in business planning, execution, team building, media relations, and market research. She was also the co-founder and CEO of Bestest. She was also the COO of the Ledgemore Group and managing director at Showcase Publishing. She spent many years in business innovation and she facilitates cross-pollination of ideas between startups and multinational companies. I'm very happy and thankful to call you a friend, Kelly. Likewise, Alani, and what a pleasure to get to see your face today. Awesome, awesome. So I'm gonna get right to it. For what in life do you feel most grateful? It's a profound question. And there are about a hundred answers I could give you, Alani, but I will tell you that at this moment in time, the thing I'm most grateful for is my mental health. So I wasn't always in a great place. And I think that's largely why I went to work for Golden and now to stealth startups in the wellness and mental health space. But without that, without being in your right mind or in a healthy place, um, the rest, you can have the trappings of a successful life. You can have a lot of friends, but if you are not in a good place mentally, then I feel like you don't really have much of anything. So the thing that I am most grateful for, as you ask me this question in this moment in time, is mental well-being. That's fascinating um, and not surprising because, you know, we were talking earlier before we started to record that to be without friends is the greatest form of poverty. And poverty is something that um, we definitely, <laughs> definitely, definitely feel. And it's deeply profound to appreciate one's mental health in that broad spectrum. So at the current moment, you know, where do you think mental health, where is that intersection between mental health and our professional lives? Because I think it's the one area that's often overlooked when it comes to work. The idea of, you know, you see people bragging on social media about how many hours they worked or how hard they're working, you know, abandoning their families, posting photos of their, you know, computer screen saying I was working all weekend and you know it's is that a badge of honor to sacrifice your mental health for anything else let alone work no I think we need to stop romanticizing the hustle that has been a dominant sort of ethos over the last 10 or 20 years and in my opinion the pandemic cast light on the fact that we are we are whole individuals. So when we come to work, there's no separation between church and state. There's no separation between home me and work me. And the pandemic made that abundantly clear where, and also we got an insight into um, 
how people live and work. And in fact, a lot of, you know, so funny because CEOs, so many leaders, you know, are under the impression that if they can't see the whites of their eyes, they're not working. And the truth is, is that people ended up working for more um, working from home. And we didn't have those old boundaries that existed. But, and so I think this is actually inviting a really good conversation over vulnerability, over who we recognizing an entire person, not just the work self and conversations all just along those lines of if I'm not in a good place at work, that actually affects how I interact with my family. And if I'm not in a good place with my family, that affects interacts, interacts with how I work. And so finally, I feel like executives are finally, and granted we have the scientific evidence that this is the case. Um, and maybe anecdotally, people have known it in their guts for a long time. But what I'm very pleased about, Alani, is that the, the pandemic brought a lot of this to light. That's awesome. So that leads me to, to my next question. You know, do you think artificial intelligence is going to help that? Or do you think it's just another backdoor that technology is, you know, using to get into our lives and we are yet to see the blowback from that? No, actually, I think there's a there's a fantastic place for technology and AI. Um, and it, it was funny because originally that scared me. And I don't know if you saw recently the founder of Coco, K-O-K-O. Um, they used sort of it, it wasn't it might have been chat GPT, but it was a bot essentially. And it was con it was individuals consented to this, by the way. Um, used a bot for mental health text responses on the, on the fly. All of those responses were monitored by a human being and you could, you, the sort of operator, if you will, would say, yes, I want to send it as is. Oh no, I want to make that better. Or no, I don't want to send it and I'm going to type something. And what they found is that the AI bot was received well, overwhelmingly well, like 80% of the time, and it cut the response time in, in half, actually more than in half. And wow. the only thing that people were somewhat rubbed the wrong way by was the fact that it didn't, it didn't come across as sort of authentically human, that the advice was fantastic. It, um, it was sort of feigning empathy of, oh, I know that if, if, you've, if you've messaged and said something, I'm having a hard time dealing with this change, and the AI bot would say, making change is difficult, and it's very, very um, demanding on you, and blah, 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 but it wouldn't, it was hard for the recipient to say, well, they really understand my position, because it's a computer, and, or it's technology, and, um, and even though their responses are valid and good, a lot of times they they lacked that that empathy, Authentic. yeah, the, that emotional connection, and so that was the only complaint. But I actually think that we are going to see a lot more AI um, in the mental health space, and already we see, you know, there's so many wearables and trackable things. So technology has has uh, has made a pretty deep, uh, let's say, it's penetrated, it's penetrated the wellness space already quite a lot. You, you can see how long you slept and how deep. So we'll see more of that. So do you then think the risk of turning humans into, let me rephrase that. Do you think there is a risk then 
that the technology will dislodge the human component. So you, you have to humanize conversations. So we're trading authenticity for validation, mm -hmm. right? So we have a situation where a lot of parents, for example, Netflix and Hulu raise their kids. You know, they come home, they're stressed, they just give the kid a tablet, go watch something on Netflix, right? And now with AI, everything from parenting to school, we have entire college courses where the kids are just going to chat GPT to write their papers for them. Mm -hmm. you know, and this but also, been... I don't think there's anything wrong with that. <laughs> well, there is intellectual rigor required. I mean, learning how to learn is something, but simply re relying on AI to tell things like GPS, for example, where, you know, I've seen kids who can't even read a map. It's a good skill to have. I, oh, oh yes. No, no, don't, don't even get me started on the, the, the life skills that I believe kids should have. And they are, they are poorly, poorly lacking in right now. Things like writing with a, you know, taking a pen to paper, mm -hmm. those very basic skills, I think that's my position now as a, I mean, we are technologists. I mean, you have ran software companies, so you understand the value that technology brings, you know, to the world as a whole. But the risk I see there is, you know, how do we balance you know, AI, automation, technology, would still keeping the human component present. That's the only risk that I have so far um, in really thinking about, like, mm -hmm. you know, where do we draw the line? Well, where do we ensure? And, and I don't think that will become evident, Alani, for many years to come. Uh, I believe that to the extent that we can use technology as an enabler, so like I mentioned, mm -hmm. some of the wearables, um, get data gathering, sleep information, for example, but also an enabler, I'll use this example, one of the stealth projects I'm working on is using technology to bring employees together in sort of shared quests. And it's gamifying that, you know, my background with the gamification of these things. So it's gamifying it. It's an enabler towards, towards certain ends that, that concern well-being. And it's that it would they would actually it's a facilitator. So it would be far more difficult to do this stuff without technology. What I think we need to be careful of, particularly in the mental health space, is a lot of companies. What I saw when I was working in the states here with Golden is a lot of companies would give their employees an app, Calm app or Headspace, and say, "Here, go meditate." And you know, like that's perpetuating exactly the problem that they need to solve, which is I'm feeling isolated. I'm feeling disconnected. <laughs> And you want me to go do something wow. on my own and with my phone? No. And so at Golden, we our, our whole <laughs> method was about bringing people together to have a shared experience, to have to do a together action. Um, even though you could do it independently, you weren't doing it asynchronously, although that's another conversation. Um, but I, so to the extent that you can use technology as an enabler, as a facilitator, I absolutely yeah. think it has a place. That's, that's, that's interesting. And I'm going to pay attention to that because um, I'm super, super curious. I have seen some very interesting demos um, on some demo days and you see some of the things being cooked up behind the scenes. Some exciting, some scary, actually. Which leads me to my next question. What are you cooking up right now? Okay, well, I can... I know you have your hands in a lot of things. Mm -hmm. So to the degree you can share <laughs> what... What's going on well, with Kelly? Sure, sure. So uh, I felt really fortunate at Golden because it was founded by Julie Wald. She is a renowned 
author and thought leader in the well-being space. She was a meditation guru to the stars, to celebrities, and was really one of the first uh, folks in that space. It, it was born out of 9-11. The company was born out of 9-11 and a lot of executives dealing with that trauma in New York City. And it was almost like now 20 years later. So this company has been around 20 years and they were really at the vanguard. And then finally, a lot of the rest of corporate America caught on 20 years later. So I actually feel like yeah. mental health and, and even technology enabled mental health uh, is in a really good place in the United States. Now, where I've set my sights, Alani, is further afield, where we have other countries in the world where we've made a lot of progress, 20 years of progress, for example, in the last five years in, in a lot of locations with um, you know everybody having mobile phones and and like all sorts of different Wi-Fi technologies. And if they, if I can go in and make an impact and bring something that is evidence-based and it's established and I've built it and I know it works here, let's bring it other places in the world. Let's translate it to other cultures. That's where, that's where my, my sights are set right now, Alani. Super cool. So what's your most treasured memory? I have a lot of memories. Um, most treasured. And I feel like whenever somebody would ask that question, the res the respondent would want to qualify it of like, most treasured with family, most treasured at work. Um, most treasured moment. Mine, mine would be this one experience that I had in Cinque Terre. And it was walking along Cinque Terre, for the listeners that don't know, uh, are five towns in Italy that are on the coastline. And you can walk, you can take the train between them, but you can also hike between them. And it's a lovely experience. And I did that when I was probably 20 years old. And I just remember the lemons being as big as grapefruits. I had never seen anything that big. Uh, the smell in the air. And at that moment in time saying, oh my gosh, this is the best moment of my life. And I think... I think back on that a lot, and and I was with friends that I was in school with overseas, and it was just this moment, this inter, you talk about intersectionality a lot, is this intersection of being fully, fully present, of mm -hmm. being with people whose company I very much enjoyed, being in an environment that was supportive and beautiful and really inspiring. And then I think not also not having some other worries. And so to me, I, some, somebody might say, well, the birth of their child or their wedding or a moment with a parent. And so to me, in, in a sense, this, this moment may seem insignificant, but it was significant to me because it, it emphasized that amazing, amazing zest for life you can feel when you are fully present being present in the right company, in the right place, and a little bit of fortune, yeah. I guess. Yeah. And now, now the challenge is taking that and extending it to those to the circumstances where you wish you weren't there or weren't with those people or weren't in that environment. Oh, that's the pendulum swinging in the other direction. Mm -hmm. Taking that piece with you. <laughs> yes. If only you could take it with you. So what advice would you give your teenage self? So it's a, I love all your questions. My, I would probably tell my teenage self to stress less, worry less. Um, my Irish, my, my dear, dear, um, recently deceased 
Irish stepdad um, had a great saying when I was younger. And he said, if you worry, you die. And if you don't worry, you still die. Um, which sounds like that charming, like Irish, you know, optimism. Uh, but, Irish yeah, <laughs> but, but suffice it to say that, that that really stuck with me of like, well, you can get yourself all spun up into something, into a tizzy, or you can kind of just sit back and roll with it. And I, and that's something that I am particularly challenged doing, just rolling with it. And so that would, I think I would just say it's, it's all not as important as you think it is. Nothing is that serious. Nothing is that serious. That's a great phrase. That's awesome. So in that spirit, then, if you could change anything about the way you were raised, what would that be? Hmm. So another fascinating question. I'm an only child and my mom used to say, oh, I wish I had given you a sibling. I wish you had a sibling. And I said, well, I don't have a frame of reference of that world. I don't know that world. So I don't know what I'm missing, missing out on. And I don't even, I don't think I am. And so asking me, I, I, I say that because your question is sort of parallel of, well, what would I, what did I feel I missed? I don't know because my lived experience is only my experience. So I don't know what I missed out on. I don't know what I would change. In fact, I kind of take a very opposite approach of just really celebrating with gratitude the fact that um, I got to live in different countries and travel with my family and that my dear mom had no problem taking me out of school if it was a powder day uh, at the ski resort. And so I would say I look back not wanting to have changed anything, but really instead I think valuing and appreciating what did happen because even the bad stuff has made me into the person I am today and the, and the resilient person that I am today. So what then is your most terrible memory? I don't want to say I know this one, but I will let you guide me. Oh, I have, I have lots of terrible memories. Uh, but I think, <laughs> and that sounds, that sounds bad. Uh, it's like, oh, how many times in business when cash flow is tight or um, if you know, business disagreements with business partners, not vetting people well, all, all the mis I always said, I, I made every mistake in the book and I think I only just made it 49% of the time because somehow fortune favored how things worked out. But the worst, the worst moment, again, this is, this is a funny thing. I just remember getting off an airplane in Orlando for a <laughs> conference and I had a cable knit sweater on. I stood up and somehow I had another passenger had gotten gum all over my sweater. I was like, oh, well, no big deal. I'll go, I'll change. Only to go arrive at the luggage carousel and have the luggage spinning around and mine is, lo and behold, it's not there. I'm speaking, I'm presenting, none of my stuff is there. I get to the hotel and it's on the Disney property and they put me in a room right next to the ice machine. It's extremely loud. Things, technology's not working. I call down. I say, hey, is there any way you can move my room? And they said, no, no, no. We're fully booked, but have a magical day. And, oh, wow. and it was, again, that was not catastrophic. Certainly, like, my dad dying in my arms would be, like, one of the worst moments. 
but I, I guess I, this is a, a, a very heightened moment in my memory because everything was literally, if it could have gone wrong, it was going wrong. It was Murphy's law was just ruling the day, ruling the day. And to have that, that front desk clerk say, have a magical day. I just felt was like rubbing it in my face. And I thought, if only you knew. And so, uh, uh, you know, at the, at the moment, I just thought things were catastrophic. But I've learned a lot about I've learned a lot about catastrophizing and catastrophic thinking since then. Clearly, mm-hmm. for sure. So, who was your favorite cartoon character as a kid? I really love the Smurfs. Do they do they count? Really? Do they count? And they are well. They count. <laughs> they count. Uh, I don't even remember. Do they talk? they talk but i just remember having a collection of them loving them loving them they're blue and they were just so unusual and they're belgian and that was where my dad lived and so maybe it was a bit of a uh, a connection in that way but i and i wish i had something deeper like oh i loved bugs bunny or pepe le pew actually no i think pepe le pew has been canceled so <laughs> interesting so do you think do you think humans technology altruism and you know just trying to you know better our lives and the world as a whole do you think morality comes from within or outside of ourselves or do you think there's always an agenda mm. I'm not sure I have an answer to that, Alani. I think maybe throughout life, my thoughts on that have changed. I love reading, you're gonna think this is kind of humorous, but I love reading about um, any instances of feral children. Uh, Temple Grandin, who is an autistic animal behavioralist, has written a lot of books. Um, She mentions some of the encounters with feral children and uh, those who really truly have been raised without human touch, without human intervention, very much Mowgli from the Jungle Book sort of scenarios. Yeah. And that there is there there are there is a sense of a higher being and a higher purpose. Um, because otherwise, how can you really test that assumption? And I know your I know your question is about morality and altruism and other things like that. But I'm I'm referring to this as, as an example because you can't effectively have a test case because nobody has, very few people have grown up without exposure to the church, uh, a parental oversight, uh, all, all sorts of influencing or um, what do they call them? Just factor, influencing factors, let's say. So I, I the studies that I've read indicate that it is there is something natural i also love i also love the instances of twins or triplets separated at birth and learning what is how much is nature and how much is nurture and i think that does speak to your question a little bit but the jury is still out on that the jury is out mm-hmm. yeah so what do you what then do you value most in a friendship 
It's funny because I don't know that this would be my answer today, but I know that if you would have asked me this question 10 years ago, my response would have been reciprocity. Nobody likes a one-sided relationship. And when I say reciprocity, it's reciprocity in terms of, I guess, emotional availability, time, interest, caring. So that would have been my answer 10 years ago. What would be my answer today? What do I most value? I have to say I've zenned out a lot. So I enter things with just a lot more. Let's look at the positives. Let's look at like what's additive, not, not what we're missing or what's wrong. And I really just try not to qualify things too, too much. Hmm. Let me, let me get back to you on that. I will get back to you during the show. Okay. The thing I most value in friendship. That's well, I think it's a shared responsibility. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's interesting. It's a, it goes back to the journey of life because we translate things very differently as we evolve because as humans, we're in this near constant state of evolution. True. So what we translate as, Hey, here's, here are the things that I need in a friendship or a relationship, whatever the situation is, you know, in a few years that may change because mm-hmm. situations change, people evolve, people mm-hmm. grow, your wants, needs, interests, curiosity, those things change over time. And there's that emotional elasticity and it's this subconsciously powerful plane of existence that even we don't know we live in it. And sometimes it might seem fleeting or insignificant, but it's ever present. Um, but it only comes with like time is that constant because it insists on itself. And, and I would add to that. So how I approach friendships, not, not necessarily what I value most, but how I, how I see them is somebody once said, you know, friendships and re- all relationships for that matter, whether it's a business relationship, romantic relationship or friendship um, are for a reason, a season or a lifetime. And the reason sometimes they come into your life, it just happened to be the person that you needed that information from or that experience from, or, you know, there were, there was a reason. The season is those friends who are maybe with you for quite literally a season, a ski season or something like that, or a four years, uh, the CEO of college life. And then a lifetime, those are the people that are with you the long, through the long haul. And I think if we actually accept that not everybody is a lifetime friend, um, sometimes they're there for a reason or a season. And that's cool. We just have to accept that and acknowledge it. All right. I will accept that answer. <laughs> well, our friendship is the season that seemingly never ends. Yes. Yeah, no, so <laughs> far, so far, it's a season. It's a season. I mean, um, it might it, it might evolve into a lifetime. We're, we're on that track. I mean, yeah. I've known you for almost 10 years, Alani. Actually over. Really over? We met in 2012, and it's 2023. Well, I will also say, I don't know about for you, but for me, the pandemic was a little bit of a mind eraser. (laughs) My God, Kelly, you're killing me. (laughs) (laughs) All right, that's awesome. That is awesome. Well, I know this, you know, we had about a half hour, you know, to go through, you know, some of those items. You're a very, very, very busy person. um, And out of many things, you know, I'm always grateful for is whenever you're gracious enough to give me some of your time. So thank you very much, you know, for being a part of this. It was my my absolute pleasure. I I would love to continue the conversation. So um, 
absolutely. And I would love to definitely have you back on. There's plenty, plenty more to talk about. Um, and I'm pretty sure you will have many more things coming up, as always. So yes. thank you, Kelly. Thank you, Alani.